because you're jumping back into the gut. Hey coach, welcome to the basketball podcast. I'm your host, Chris Oliver. I appreciate you joining us for this week's podcast. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the show and visit basketballimmersion.com for more coaching resources and access to all the basketball podcasts. I hope you will give us a shout out on social media, on Twitter at Bball Immersion, or on Instagram at Basketball Immersion to help me continue to share the game. Enjoy the episode. Coach, I really appreciate your support and sharing of the podcast. I'm excited to announce a new partnership that we have started and we are now presented by and supported by the outstanding team at risingcoaches.com. Aligning with a basketball brand like Rising Coaches has always been a goal of mine since starting the basketball podcast, and I'm grateful for the opportunity that has come our way. Rising Coaches provides access to the largest coaching tree in basketball. Through them, you can develop your craft as a coach, connect with other coaches and decision makers, be the first to learn about countless job opportunities on the exclusive Rising Coaches member site. Go to risingcoaches.com today to find out more and become a member. Awesome to welcome author of the mid-range theory, Seth Partnow, to the basketball podcast. Partnow covers the NBA and basketball analytics for The Athletic. He is the former director of basketball research for the Milwaukee Bucks. The mid-range theory book dives into topics from shot selection to evaluating prospects to considering aesthetics and ethics while analyzing the box scores. Partnow deftly explores where the NBA is now, how it got here, and where it might be going next. We're going to talk about that and more on the basketball podcast. Seth, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. I've uh, enjoyed listening over over the the, the last year year plus. So uh, it's, it's fun to be here. I, I I floated out on social media that you were going to be on the podcast, and I got a lot of DMs and texts from coaches at all levels of basketball, NBA, NCAA, Europe, uh, high school, and uh, so many of them had already read the book and loved the book. Uh, so we're going to talk about that, but also just, uh, so many of them had some really curious questions. So we're going to get to all that, but, uh, let's start with maybe why should anyone at any level read your book? Uh, there's really two aspects. I think the first is, um, to hopefully demystify the concept of analytics and, and make, make, uh, illustrate the way it is. It's just talking about basketball in another way and to put some of these concepts, which can maybe seem abstruse or mathematically and technologically dense, put them into to basketball terms, which is the, the language that basketball coaches speak. Um, the second one is, is to emphasize that it's not about being perfect or knowing everything or any of that. It's about being better. It's the same thing you do in practice every day. You're not trying to, to be perfect. You're trying to be better. Um, studying the game from a statistical lens is about knowing more than you did yesterday, not knowing everything and not having the perfect answers, but, but gaining advantage by, you know, bits and pieces of asking the right questions and and just knowing a little bit more. Um, And so perhaps um, sort of cueing some ideas about how to learn more about your team, your players, uh, the opposition coming up uh, to, to give you that little bit of a, of a, of an extra edge kind of every day. And, and I love how you phrased it to, um, and you've said this, I've heard you say this before, that like you haven't solved basketball and analytics don't solve basketball, but the ideal is they put us in a situation where we're less wrong, right? Yeah, that's exactly right. That's uh, I, I cannot, uh, I cannot claim to have uh, come up with that, that terminology, but that's definitely the way I think about it is, is, is just knowing a little bit more today than I did yesterday. It's a complicated game and there's a lot of stuff you just don't know. And you're making educated guesses a lot 
Uh, and but if you're those educated, those those guesses are a little more educated, then maybe you're right 60% of the time instead of 55% of the time. And uh, if everyone else is still at 55, that's a pretty big edge. It's a great edge. And, uh, you know, we're probably beyond the point where people aren't buying into analytics. I, I would say by and large, I would say most basketball coaches I've been around, you know, love getting into it and love learning more. So this is great. But you also mentioned some of the cognitive biases that we all suffer. Can you just shape some of those for us to understand maybe what, what we're still fighting against in terms of getting this next level of understanding? Sure. Um, you know, th- we have developed over the course of kind of the evolution uh, some, some, some heuristics, some mental routines that generally have served us pretty well in terms of survival. Uh, but now that as we get into sort of more uh, intellectual pursuits, sometimes uh, lead us down, down wrong paths. Um, like, I don't even, I don't even know which one to start with, but there's, there's, there's just so many, I think recency bias is certainly one that, uh, that, that, that can affect people. The most recent thing you've, you've seen is taken as, as reality, instead of looking at the, the, you know, the whole course of a player. Um, That's a I'm big sure. one for coaches, by yeah. the way. Like the um, most recent play or the most recent thing I learned, et cetera, it's going to solve. Yeah. I mean, I, I think, you know, like the, you know, the uh, it's always, uh, well, they, they, they say the mid range shot is a bad shot. Well, if, yeah, guy might've made two in a row, but we don't really care about the last two shots. We care about the last hundred um, and the last thousand or, or whatever kind of, of scale you're working on. So um getting too uh, almost too results oriented in, in like what happened on the last play. Like, you know, what we've all experienced, you play great defense for the entire shot clock and a guy heaves one in from 30 feet. Do you want to play that same defense every possession? Yeah. Even if the shot went in or at times you, a guy misses an open dunk, you would never, you don't want to, <laughs> you don't want to play that defense again because you don't want to give up that attempt because you know, 95% of the time that's, that's an easy two. Um, and so yeah. thinking in a more I'll give you example, way. sorry, just to add to that, like yeah. we play zone as a coach and we go, oh, this is the best decision for us. Then we get scored on in the first possession and then we don't play zone again. Right. It's like, oh, they made one three. Well, yeah. well, you're, you're, you're sort of, you're making that bet that over, you know, you know, five, 10, 15 possessions. Yeah. They might make a three or two, but, uh, you're, you're getting, you're getting a better overall outcome of those possessions because of what they're, what the opposition isn't getting. Because you're sort of conceding some of, I don't want to say conceding, but um, willing to live with certain other shots. Mm-hmm. And the past and the past way of doing things is a big one too, isn't it? And that seems to be where a lot of coaches still are stuck. Yeah, it's it's uh, there. You know, the the uh, insanity is 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 you know repeating the same things and expecting different outcomes, right? I mean, there's if you're if you're trying to get better, uh, sometimes you have to realize there's things you're doing now that aren't as good as they could be. Um, and, you know, sometimes the, the things that were done in the past were are sort of um, not to be, I, I try to avoid being too technical, but like they were optimal given the resources, given the technology, given the, the state of the game and game strategy, things that may have been optimal in that setting. And now that we know more, now the game has progressed now that video is more readily available at your fingertips. Now that there are, there are, there are technologies like synergy or stuff like that. Now we can, we can do things that we couldn't do before because the, uh, the access to information is, is just greater. 
So uh, I'll give you just a, an example with what I share, and I know you're familiar with it and we've discussed it, but some of the ideas like drill makeover, applying evidence ideas around skill acquisition or more learning to what we do. And, and then again, it's just like, it's one of these things that uh, we try and approach it from the coach's perspective to just ask them the question, is there a better way? And that's what you're asking throughout the book is basically, is there a better way? It's not that you have the answer, but is there a better way? And sort of always, always examining that, like, mm-hmm. and, and almost more importantly, like, even when you've had success asking, is there a better way? It's, it's easy to ask, is there a better way after a loss? Because, you know, the feedback is, is pretty clear. Um, well, I, I shouldn't say that. The feedback certainly in, like pushes one to that direction. The, uh, um, the desire to when things worked out, yeah, it was perfect. Everything happened according to plan. Um, that's almost one of the, 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 the biggest pitfalls that, that you can fall into and not like improving upon success and sort of anticipating that what happened will continue to happen forever. Um, it's, it's definitely a tendency, certainly of, uh, you see this in fan bases, like, oh, well, you know, we, we only lose when we, when we don't make shots or we only lose when the <laughs> opponent has an outlier shooting game. It's like, well, those, th- those things happen too. And, and maybe you want to do things, your team wants to be better. You want your team to be better. So it's a little more like robust to those, those sorts of gums. Um, but it's very easy to, to ascribe the, uh, the wins to skill and the losses to luck. And that's, uh, that's a pretty sure way to put yourself in bad spots, I think. I got this variation of question from maybe almost all the NBA assistants that reach out to me about this podcast. And it, it, the variation is this. Can you get Seth to explain to people why the word analytics is not just about shooting threes? <laughs> variations of that but you basically yeah. say in the book the word analytics is not the right word i mean it's been it's been pretty hopelessly bastardized yeah um there's there's a a gentleman who who uh has been a kind of a leader in um uh, player development especially for pitchers in baseball named kyle body he runs a he runs a, a, a company called driveline baseball kind of out of tacoma washington uh, and has previously worked as an, as a player development exec with the Cincinnati Reds, um, as he put it, like a lot of the pushback against analytics is either a uh, a as he put it a low field practitioner kind of has a sort of bowl and china shop their way through uh, explaining concepts in in sort of a dismissive and and overly arrogant way, or kind of someone in the media has done a very ham handed job of of describing or defining what it is. And I think in basketball, at least the latter is, is much more true than, than the former. Although I, I mean, you know, there's always the case where things explained poorly uh, lead to sort of almost a visceral revulsion, right? If you have, if, if someone comes to you with, Hey, you know, coach, you've, I know you have 25 experience, but you, you really don't know anything. Let me tell you a better way. Like no matter how correct the, uh, the advice is it's not going to stick because you can't really come at people that way for the most part. So let's start at a really simple level. I think many people have been exposed first to this whole conversation through Dean Oliver's work in the four factors, shooting turnovers, rebounding free throws. So let's, let's digest that. Is that still applicable to most coaches at most levels? Yeah. I mean, that's, I think the, you might 
change some of that a little bit in sort of the the three point era and our ability, at least at at kind of a high NCAA plus level of basketball, to know a little bit more about kind of shot selection. But in general, yeah, it's it's you know well, it's what basketball is. You take and make good shots and prevent the opponent from doing the same. You don't foul on defense. You protect the backboard and you take care of the ball. Like that's that's basketball, right? And I think that that's the genius of the four factors is it's distilling those really basic tenets to um, a more objective scale that really allows you to to grade things. Um, so yeah, no, I think those are still hugely applicable and and really pretty strong. I mean, remain very strong indicators of 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 why a team is hmm, sort of the why and how. The distinction there is a little fuzzy, so I'll say it's the the how and why somewhere in there of of why a team is is sort of performing well or poorly on offense or defense. So so, so the four factors and other things like that made it accessible to coaches who don't have access to say higher level tracking and analytics, but yeah. let, let's, let's go maybe a little bit deeper for those coaches that don't have that option to be able to say, even get synergy or obviously second spectrum. What are some of the most important things that we can do to operationalize this for them? Um, I think on a, on a, on, on some level kind of context is always key. Um, sort of a lot of it is sort of fancy counting in in a way and i think that's that that's an expression that again the the head of second spectrum has 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 used at times before um you know a lot of it is like what set gets us which shots not like not did they go in or not did we generate you know we we ran chin five times how many times did we get a quality look, however you want to define a quality look. Like I think at certainly lower levels of basketball, that's, that's, that's a little bit of a qualitative judgment rather than having, you know, fully tracked and uh, you know, being able to come up with an estimated expected shooting percentage or something like that, but you don't need that. You just need to know you can almost just good shot, bad shot or good shot. Okay. Shot, bad shot. And then if you, you sort of cross cross reference that with how you got there, if you're tracking like, who is in the game or what set did we call? Um, that's all, all already just a ton more information. Um, yeah, you can do it off makes and misses, but then you're sort of a little, you know, you're, you're only going to run the same play how many times a game. And then you're a little bit beholden to kind of the, the normal, especially on if you end up with jump shots, even if they're open, kind of the, the make or miss variance. And you don't want to, you don't want to make decisions going forward based on that. You want to make it, you know, from the moment the ball leaves the shooter's hand, am I happy with this possession? And and sort of reducing it to that level, I think that can tell you a tremendous amount about how the process of your team's offense or flip it around, the process of your team's defense. Uh, and that's really what you're going for because, you know, you're uh, that's, that, that, that's sort of a better way to ensure good results or not ensure, but... Um, influence towards <laughs> i'll say good results in the future is if those processes are sound it's great stuff and i want to come back to your chin example and dive a little bit deeper because that's a good example there but um ju- just for for simplicity here what's the difference between an open shot on the perimeter and an open shot at the rim and how we define that nowadays well i mean i think you it's uh you have to be much closer at the rim to effectively bother a shot than you do 
on, on the perimeter. And this is uh, something that I've, I've talked about a lot is I understand why kind of at the, the uh, stats as presented on NBA.com use sort of one definition, but it's, it, you can, because you have so much variety of ways you can finish left hand, right hand, all, you know, all leaning back and stuff like that around the rim, you have to be pretty close. You have to be, you know, two, four feet away from, from a guy body to body to really affect that shot. Whereas, you know, especially if you're closing out on a shooter, you can affect the shooting motion um, by from further away. Um, and I think like exactly how that's defined depends by level mm-hmm. um, at the NBA level, like an open three pointer is, is, you know, a uh, defender six feet or more away. Um, and that's, that's empirical. It's not like a, um, a, a judgment call. It's just, if you, even if you get into really granular data, sort of um, the break point is around five and a half feet, really over the, 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 the time period we have tracking data, but six feet is good enough. Um, and then there's like, there's a zone where it's sort of semi-contested or what you might say is NBA open. And then within four feet uh, it's tightly contested. Funny thing is um, NBA players are NBA players because they make good decisions so there actually aren't that many three-pointers taken with a defender closer than four feet away. Um, and that's it, which leads itself to sort of uh, not to go down a rabbit hole here, but um, thinking about how you're actually tracking things is important because if you're judging it just based on shooting percentage, you're missing a whole category of shots, shots that would be taken threes that would be taken with the defender, like three feet away. Those are, those are, those shots are generally deferred. That's a good defensive outcome in most cases, but if you're just looking at shooting percentage, you're not even you're 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 eliminating almost the best defense you played by the guy deciding to not shoot. Um, so, um, the, and then that's again why getting to sort of the, the the process, what what the outcome of the possession wasn't the ball going in or not. It's did the opponent get a good shot or not? Did we get a good shot or not? Um, and, and figuring out the really qualitatively what you think that is more so than any sort of um, outside imposed definition, I guess, because it, it's going to depend, you know, completely on your personnel and, and the level you're, you're playing at. It's fascinating stuff. And uh, really for coaches who are doing this, the most important thing is that they have con- consistency in their evaluation of what it is. Mm-hmm. Right. Yep. And you, you can, you can refine it over time. And I think, I think, I think most coaches probably have a decent sense of, of how to, you know, good shot, bad shot in between. I think as you start tracking these things, you might find that your intuitions were off a little bit and you can adjust sort of those definitions going forward, but uh, you kind of need to, to sort of, systematically be be tracking these things first before you can identify where you might be off a little bit in one direction or another. Yeah, good point. And then, so back to that chin example, the question becomes then a little bit of what I've always wrestled with is, is it actually the play chin or specific action within chin, or is it getting a specific player or personnel in a position where they can make a play and then evaluating that? Because I think too often we credit the offensive system in the offense rather than actually that we just got the player in the right spot. 
And that, and that's a that's a really good point. And that's that sort of gets into why the sort of the dichotomy between analytics and eye test is wrong. Is you can this tracking can tell you what happened pretty well. Can't always tell you why. So you identify the situation by the what, and then you know you're, if you're talking about a specific you know set like that. Then okay, well we did it eight times. It's not too hard for me to watch those eight plays and come up with some qualitative thoughts about what worked and what didn't. But at least I, I'm guided in my study of what to look for by knowing sort of what those outcomes were. Okay, we got good stuff out of this. Why? Now to even get to the question of asking the why, you do need to know that you got the good stuff or you didn't out of this out of this set. And so that's that helps frame the question that that you're you're studying and and that and that's sort of the both the the more traditional sort of watch the video and and turn your kind of x's and o's eyes on onto it as well as um the 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 broader picture of of you know what what happened here so what am i what am i really interested in finding out and those things have to work together or they or you're 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 missing something and I wanted to bring that out because, again, what you paint the picture of is the importance of the coach and the experience and, you know, whatever we call it, feel, intuition, whatever, our, from all of our experiences as in coaching is still incredibly valuable in evaluating, again, why something happened and how we can keep repeating it over time. No, absolutely. I mean, it's, this is something that uh, in, intuitive decision making requires reps. Coaches of, of any sort of level of experience have probably have sufficient reps to be able to intuitively identify that's good or bad when watching on individual levels. It's just you you need the aggregate also to kind of keep yourself from from overly overly making decision on on sort of small sample of hey we got a really great shot out of that play once but that that doesn't necessarily indicate you at all the time okay you got a great shot out of that play did a defender fall down <laughs> like you know that's that's uh that, that that that's not a great indicator for it being successful in the future so if you ran it a hundred times and, and had success once you you kind of keep yourself from from overly I remember we ran it that one time and it was perfect. So we just have to run it better. It's like, if you did it a hundred times, that was the only time it worked. Then, then maybe, maybe not. Well, I know I'll give you examples. When I did my master's is again, 25 years ago, we ran kind of a Princeton style type of offense. It wasn't pure Princeton, but, and uh, I remember doing, you know, outcomes and evaluating what actually led to the outcome. And most of the time, it was amazing how many times I just wrote, like I tagged one-on-one or ISO or, you know, or just, Someone made a play like it yeah. wasn't the offense. It was just something happened. As you said, something happened with the defense or something happened within the offense that led to that opportunity for someone to take advantage of advantage. And that's ultimately where we have to prepare players the most is to take advantage of advantage. And I would go even further than that is that's that that probably helps you understand what spots do do my players. Are they able to create advantage or take advantage of of an edge um you know there's guys have spots on the floor why that is 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 sort of uh very complex and sort of 
probably the, a, a topic for a future book, which I am not in any way qualified to write. <laughs> but no, you can start to, you know, okay, well, okay, if if I get my two guard, like if if he if I can get situations where he's attacking closeouts from the left left wing, he's great. If he's isoing against the set defense from the top of the floor, not so much. Like you start to you can, you can start to identify those patterns, and then you know it's yeah maybe you want to do some drills to to uh, improve his ability in isolation from the top of the floor, but you also want to run sets that put him in situations that 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 he can, he already performs well in. So it, it sort of pushes you down like almost the, 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 the now path and the future for, for skill improvement path and identifies where like one of those things are and the other isn't. And, you know, I, 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 I can't imagine I'm saying things that coaches don't already know. It's, it's just, you know, how you get there, make it a little easier, make it a little more systematic. Well, and that's kind of my point a little bit is that what it's what it what I learned from all of that is obviously too often I think high school, college, maybe not at the NBA as much, but we, we celebrate the ball reversal, you know, the 10 passes that lead to the score. And what I found when I did that study and then it drove me throughout is like the less we pass, the better we got if we could create an advantage quicker. And um that was kind of a mindset to help that team actually shift and play better basketball as it got towards the end of the year to not run all these actions and get to the point faster. Right. And I, but, and I think that there's sort of, there's a competing thing here. Like you do want to celebrate, like, uh, you know, keeping in your continuity. Okay. We don't have anything yet, but let's keep working it. And then we have it and we go, but that's, that's instrumental to creating that advantage. It's not, that's not the, that's not the thing. That's, you know, the chapter on, on good hearts law is basically what that you're not, it's not the, it's not the four passes that was, you know, it's not the, the Normandale four passes. That was the thing. It was the, okay, we made these plays, create an advantage, put them in rotation and, and got our, got our, our, our best driver to attack a closeout. That happens off of one pass or seven. It's still a good outcome. So you're not really caring about the number of passes so much as you are getting to that like spot in your offense. So I'm fascinated. I got this question from college coach and it was very interesting to me, their perspective, but um, what is changing or what should be changing in terms of player development? If we are moving players along with this understanding now of the math behind basketball, it, should it be driving a different approach to player development at this point, or are we still in its infancy and it probably doesn't have that big a sample to be able to tell us, Hey, this should be the focus. So this is a really interesting question that comes up a lot Um, because, because on some level um, and this is, this is, this is a conversation that I think that I I really credit some of like the uh, uh, sort of the more traditional basketball minds. Like, Hey, you don't want a guy shooting mid range. How's he ever going to learn to shoot the mid range? Mm -hmm. And for most players, that's not actually a problem. Like the, the kind of the, the mid range is your, is the province of like the, the, the most talented, the star players. How do you know? How do you find out if you don't give, give players chances to develop that? And that's a, that's a tough balance. So it's, it's the, okay, the working on, these are the situations we're going to put you in, in the game, in our offense. And those are, we're going to try to, for most players, we're going to try that to be, you know, you're, you're catching and shooting an open three, you're cutting to the basket, you're attacking a closeout with the intention of either getting all the way to the basket or, drawing help and kicking rather than, than shooting a pull-up. 
but for the player you want to progress to be your your offensive difference maker, your star, how do you get them to make those harder sort of in-between decisions? How do you get them to to work on those 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 more difficult, lower efficiency in the individual play, but those plays that sort of unlock everyone else making the simple play? And I don't I don't know if I have a good answer for that other than, than recognizing that that tension exists. And there is a little bit of a tension, that tension between what helps us win tonight and what's going to be important for my program in two years when this, this you know, sophomore who's, who's got some talent, but we've got better players now, when he has to be the guy, when he or she has to be the, the main cog in, in, in the offense. Uh, and I don't like, I don't have, a, I don't have, a, I don't have a, I'm not sure there is an, an answer to that other than recognizing that those are those are two tracks that you're working on. I'm like, if you're waiting till this player has to be the engine to start teaching those things, it's too late. But you also don't want them to be like freelancing too much when that's not their role on your team today. Well, and, and I think the NBA gives us a little bit of the answer in the sense that really talented, say multi-skilled, mid-range and three players get placed in roles where they do much simpler things at the NBA level and at other levels, they would obviously have more multi-skill approach. So probably more holistic, uh, but with a focus on their future, but within your program, more of a role definition. Yeah. And, but, and you don't, but you don't want to be too limiting. That is the danger. You're absolutely right. And I had this, I I was on uh, Eddie Johnson's uh, radio show about a month ago. And we talked about this with respect to Mikhail Bridges. And it's like, right now, do you want Mikhail Bridges taking a lot of mid-range shots? No. Is Mikhail Bridges talented enough that you kind of want to see if he can be that guy? Yeah, I think so. So how do you balance that? Now, the Suns are good enough that they can probably afford to, to use a possession or three a game to, to find that out. Uh, but that's, that's a luxury of already being like a, a really excellent team that not everyone has. So for a team that's not quite as high performing, how do you balance that? I wanted to take a brief pause from the podcast today to tell you about the pick and roll offense course on basketballimmersion.com. An NCAA Division I coach texted me last week telling me that he joined basketballimmersion.com and took his first course. He told me, and I quote, The pick and roll offense course was tremendous. So many creative ways to categorize pick and roll concepts and make the teachings better. I cannot wait to watch more videos and complete more courses. Your learning will never stop as a member of basketballimmersion.com as there are 25 courses with more coming each week, over 600 videos, and now over 70 master classes on special topics and so much more. Get one-stop shopping to stimulate your coaching. Get access at basketballimmersion.com and support not only your coaching, but this podcast as well. Thank you for being part of this community. Well, and I, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I was on the Detroit uh, Bad Boys podcast uh, with Bryce Simon, and it, we actually brought that up in reverse because for the Pistons, almost for their young players, they, they're not, I'm not saying they're not trying to win, but they have less of a, an interest in winning. Right. So they maybe should be focusing on more. What are the things that are going to lead to those young players' long-term success rather than short-term success? And again, what a challenge. Either way. And when do you, when do you like, like example, there's probably like Sadiq Bay, right? When do you pull the plug and like, "Mm, okay, no, three and D is probably his, 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 his ideal role. Like we gave it, we gave it the college try on, on, on having him operate in the mid range. And I just don't think it's going to happen. 
Like when do you, when do you make that decision? These that, are that's these the are, art of it, isn't it? Yep, <laughs> absolutely. And it's it's and that's why you know it's always an art, not a science, because there's you know the the individual player is 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 more complex than any model or system can really can really tell us. Yeah. And and I know for that example with Steve Bay, I mean, there's there's fan base that's just losing their mind because he's doing things outside of what he did to be so successful, uh, say in his first year. But again, that has to be part of his growth in some way. It just happens in this case under a really, really big microscope. But you're right. At some point, they might have to pull him back. And and I think there's a there's almost a sub lesson for for coaches there is if you want to, if you want a player to try something, you have to give them permission to fail. Mm-hmm. And then it's like, and it's not on them. It's, 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 it's not, I mean, it's, it's on you and that's sort of, that's okay. Because that evaluation has value in and of itself. Like obviously in the NBA context, like it's, you know, thinking ahead to like, you know, next contract and other player acquisitions as well. Um, but a player trying something and failing is, is, is actually pretty valuable. It's, it's really good information that you get. Um, and that's, that's sort of always a sort of a frustration with me with, with the, or often a frustration with me with how teams treat young players is they don't give themselves, you know, you've got a two or three season evaluation window on a first round pick. If you get to year three and you don't, and you just don't know, I think you've done something wrong. Like mm-hmm. maybe there's been injuries or something like that that pre- prevented you, but you don't want to be in that situation going into, you know do we sign him to an extension or not and not know, not have a good sense of, of, of what he can be. Um, and even if you find out he's not the guy, that's pretty useful to know rather than, than, than kind of guessing at it. And, you know, if you're in a situation of guessing at it, um, we talked about biases earlier, uh, optimism bias tends to take over there. And that's where, you know, teams tend to make a lot of mistakes. It's like, Oh yeah, no, we'll fill in all these blanks that we don't know with, with, you know, a plus, and yeah, it looks great if we fill those in with A plus. And obviously, like a C is more likely, uh, just because that's that's how things work. Average, like the average on average is average. <laughs> There's so much to go into, and uh, you know, I'm big on decision making. So let's do that as a starting point uh, for some data. Let's pos- is it possible to simplify, say, the shoot, drive, pass on the catch decision? Is it is it possible to simplify that? Oof. I mean, that's, that's much more your area than mine. I think, um, I mean, I, th- you know, but, and giving, I haven't seen it giving guys like simplifying the reads for most players. I, I would think is, is yeah. Um, whether there's a data driven way to do that, I I'm, let, I'm let sure there example. is, but yeah, yeah, let ahead. me, let me even go simpler. There's so much yeah. ball screen in the game. Yeah. So like, is, is there data that's going to help a player understand when they should be making a decision as a handler on the ball screen? Let's just start from just their perspective. They come off a ball screen. Is there some data that we can help that player understand off of one dribble after you clear the point of the screen versus two dribbles after you clear the point of the screen? If you, you know, there's a better decision most often when you only use one dribble versus two or something like that. So this is, a, this is I think, a really good point a really good thing to get into for, for coaches is I don't know if this is a, for the player, if this is a data question mm-hmm. for the coach, for the organization, for the player development person, for what like, they should be teaching. 
yeah, you're you're sort of you're sort of studying. That's you what I kind of see. You can kind of see. All right, if you take like when he takes that extra dribble, what happens? Mm-hmm. And then you don't you don't need to like. I, I my sense is most players are going to tune that out. But hey, this works better when you make the one dribble and make a read. And so we're going to work on that. Like they don't totally need to know in most cases the why. Then mm-hmm. there's some players who are going to who are going to process things at you know speeds which that the data can they can they can sort of self correct with the data. I think that's a that's a that's a relatively small group of players um, that may increase. Uh, this is something we've seen in baseball is as sort of the data has been in baseball for long enough, there are more and more players coming up who are conversant in, in sort of uh, self uh, self diagnosis through that kind of thing. Um, Are you seeing that in basketball too? It's a little early yet. And I have some questions about whether the, uh, relative complexity of the sport being a more dynamic kind of flow-based game. I think it'll probably be something that we'll see more of, but I don't think it's ever going to be at the level where, you know, a, a a pitcher can go look at his spin rate, like, and, and look at his grip in a high-speed camera and like self-diagnose that way. I'm not sure that we're especially close to reaching that point with basketball. I, I would agree with that. I would agree. Um, so, so, so ultimately the challenge for all coaches is how, what, what are some ways they can translate, you know, this information into easily accessible direction for players or for themselves in terms of what to coach, but let's maybe start from, you know, what can I give the players that would help them? I mean, that's the, that's the, that's why, that's why uh, coaches get the big bucks, right? It's making <laughs> those decisions. There's something I, and I sent this, I sent, I think I sent this to you is there was an article, I think on yes. in sports illustrated uh, about, um, you know, uh, it's a, it's a bill Belichick, like uh, uh, a play breakdown technique called padding. Um, okay. Can I read the part that you sure, that I love the part it said Belichick yeah. might. Uh, Belichick might consider hundreds of factors in any one game, but he wants his Patriots to focus on no more than two or three specific to each player, funneling complexity into digestible emphasis. And that's it right there. That's now, it. How, do, how do we do that? I don't know. I think the <laughs> fact that like part of the reason I like, I would think that Belichick is like one of the great coaches in, in the history of sports <laughs> is he has some kind of ability, whether it's pattern recognition or, or whatever, that he can actually like take in the, that, that, that hundred inputs and distill it into the ones that are important. I think for most, it's like, that's, you're asking too much. And, you know, it's, it's a kind of thing where like, it's like any other training, you get stronger at it, you know, the more you do. So I, I think my advice for coaches like starting out is, you know, pick a smaller number of kind of indicators that you're looking at and get reps like taking those in and making decisions and kind of iterate on that and as you learn more you can kind of add more ingredients to the to the to the pot so uh let's go back to the basics then any you know high school coach doesn't have access to synergy what what in your opinion should they be tracking or what opinion should they be getting information on that will help them help their team, let's say help their players improve and help their team win. 
So assuming you have you have access to be able to like watch the game later and maybe have a have an assistant that. and have an assistant or two to help like chart these things. Like the things that I would want to know are who's on the floor, what were we in, what was the the sort of the process outcome of this? What was the you know did we get it? Do we have a how would we grade this possession in terms whether it's shot quality, whether it's you know got to the free throw line, turned the ball over, whatever. Like those would be the three things that I would want to know. Um, and then from there, you can start to, if you collect those sort of consistently across uh, a number of games, I think you can start to see the patterns start to emerge of which player combinations are, are working, which aren't maybe some indication as to why they're okay. When we have our backup point guard on the floor, we turn the ball over a lot. So what can we do to, what are our safer things we can run since we know that we have trouble executing you know more complex things without our starter in the game like those that that, that would be sort of an example of, of of something that i think would be helpful um you tell me does that sound like something that's 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 doable on a on a on a it's 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 complex and it's gonna especially the first couple times you start to chart these things it's gonna take a while but as you get as you do it more it gets easier and you got to start somewhere <laughs> Yeah, and, and I, truthfully, I, I credit like so many high school coaches. I mean, definitely in our basketball immersion community that I interact with a little bit deeper. I am so impressed with how much they are accomplishing, really. And and from using students or you know assistants or parents or different things like that, the the things that they're tracking and like I, I'm I'm super impressed. So I, I think it is time to to challenge them and to say, hey, these are the things that we think are the most valuable. Potentially, try them and find out. And uh, yeah, I think they're ready. And and I would and I would add one thing on on top of this. Uh, a friend of mine, who uh, Zach Bovair, who's, who's assistant at Indiana State, uh, has has um, he's described in the past his the staffs he's worked on have used uh, um, kind of analytics tracking uh, in in two ways. Uh, he, as he describes it, it's religiously and liberally. In the religious religiously, he means. As a coaching staff, these are the things we're, we're tracking this season, and that's stone tablet stuff. That's like we're not – we decided before the season what we're, what we're looking at, what's important. This is what it's going to be for the season, and that discussion is over. For players, lie, cheat, steal, make stuff up, whatever. Just get them to do uh, whatever data. You can slice it any way you want. You're trying to influence them to do the things on the floor that, will, that you've evaluated will work. And so I think for the, the 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 tracking point for coaches there is pick what you think is important and give it some time and work with it before you start to you know you don't want to you know you don't want to mess with the engine while the plane is flying, and then you you can okay after you know half a season a season a month whatever however long it is you can kind of look back and say that's not quite capturing the information I want so let's change it up but you want to be consistent with what you're capturing for enough time to evaluate whether that's it's working for you. So uh, before I ask the actual question, maybe tell us, because, because this is a fascinating part of the book is why the defensive metric defensive metrics are bad. So let's start with that. Uh, If it came down to one question, how do I count what didn't happen? And I I talked earlier about, you know, that like a great defensive outcome is uh, you know, you, you close out on a guy and he does nothing. Like he doesn't, he doesn't shoot. 
he doesn't pass to the next open player. He doesn't drive by you. You just kind of, you just contain the ball. That shows up nowhere in, in the vast majority of, in really any sort of stat tracking that we have. Um, but that's like, that's the A-plus outcome. And if you're not capturing the A-plus outcome from a defensive standpoint, you, you can see how the problems sort of cascade from there. So uh, Eli Horowitz, who is a PR director for the LA Sparks, actually sent me kind of that. And then I kind of looked back after he had said that, because he had made the point that kind of your argument made him a little more skeptical of some of the offensive ones, which I'm curious to get your thoughts on. Are we, are we skeptical of the offensive ones or we're pretty good with that despite the defensive deficiencies? So there, there's, there's in, in, in studying basketball from a statistical lens, there are, there are a lot of paradoxes where the defensive side is not the inverse of the offensive side. Mm-hmm. So the example at the NBA level is that um, if, if you're defining shot selection just by like where the shots are taken from, there was a time when that told you that one thing told you a lot about how good an offense was. It kind of doesn't anymore. Like as the three pointer was becoming a bigger thing and sort of the, the catch and shoot mid ranger was being phased out. The teams that were earlier on that bus were gaining an advantage. Uh, now that everyone has sort of got that memo, it's now again, it's, it's a little bit more, okay. Yeah. You can you maybe can gain a slight advantage there, but it's mostly about taking the shots that your guys can make now on the defensive end, since you're playing against everybody, uh, where you're allowing shots as a defense uh, tells us a great deal about how good a defense is. So it's it, even though this thing doesn't matter offensively anymore, it matters tremendously defensively. Um, and there's there's so there are those 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 kind of paradoxes all throughout the sport. So yeah, on some level, if we can't really evaluate the defense, how can we evaluate the offense? There's some truth to that, um, but it's still we we. Get we get to good enough with the offensive metrics we have, just in, if if for no other reason than the stuff we're tracking better captures the offensive process than anything we're tracking really does with defense. Great answer, great answer. And uh, uh, Ben Resner, who's uh, an NBA G League coach, he did a, a masterclass presentation for us, which is available for everyone on YouTube. But it's modern basketball positions, player development, scout, scouting, and lineup balance. And really, again, his argument, which which I'm curious to get your thoughts are, is that the way we traditionally define lineups doesn't apply anymore and that we should be thinking differently in terms of how we position players, but also in terms of how we define them. And I'm ba- I'm guessing based on all the stuff that you share in the book and what you're talking about now, that you would somewhat agree with that, that we have to get beyond our traditional thinking. To a degree. Mm. Um, I think thinking like in, in line, you're talking about like lineup balance, like there is, there are a mix of skills you want on the floor. Yes. And this is something we can study a little bit, but it's also, I mean, the, you know, the traditional wisdom is, is not too far off and okay. We need, you know, someone who can create with the ball in his hands and people who can space the floor and some people who can screen and, and finish at the rim and, you know, in various combinations of that sort of work to different levels. Um, and it's probably better to think in those terms. However, I think when we're looking at sort of the population of players, for whatever reason, though they do kind of 
people tend to fall into positional archetypes along kind of the old, just if for no other reason, then that's how they've always played basketball. So it's often actually a difficulty in like fitting in sort of an odd, like a player with an oddly shaped skill set because everyone else is sort of, has sort of more defined in more defined shapes. And how do you fit those together? Like, you know, the, in the NBA level, like Ben Simmons is sort of a classic example of this, right? Um, He's, he's sort of hard to build around, not because he's bad, but because his mix of skills is so unusual that the other four guys around him have to do sort of more unusual things for players of their sort of rough size and, and kind of defense and possible defensive roles. Um, so the fact that is he a point guard, is he a power forward? I mean, those labels are maybe antiquated, but they still kind of describe for the most part, you know, would it be 80 or 90% of players probably fit into one of those boxes pretty well. And so it's a useful shorthand at least. It is useful shorthand. And and the question is like, is it because we still define them at a really young level according to those positions? And that becomes a greater discussion, which I would argue that I'd rather have someone say they're a basketball player at a young age than say they're a position. Because obviously, as you said, if you're suddenly getting a team with a Ben Simmons type player, what position you traditionally play may be different. But as you said, the the same type of skill application or decision making might still apply. I really love that. That's a great answer uh, to be able to connect those things. Uh, And it's a really fascinating conversation. Seth, the mid-range theory. It's just an outstanding book and and stimulating so many questions just now, but uh, for everyone who reads it as well. Uh, curious then maybe what, what's maybe one of the questions or one of the things that's been stimulated in your mind since you released the book that somebody's raised a question to you and has been maybe the most stimulating for you? Oh man, I had an answer and then it, it just completely, it, it completely went away. That's funny. Um, <laughs> that's right. Take your time. We can edit. Yeah. If you want, or we can no, it's, I, 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 I had, oh, okay. No, I got it. Okay. So one of the it's funny you you kind of the the when you write things on the internet uh never read the comments is sort of a uh is a maxim to live by so i i've tried to avoid too much but one of the sort of uh an interesting kind of uh i would say criticism that i've that i've seen occasionally of the book is that there is that it's not about any one big idea that it's about a number of small ideas and um, so like, why wasn't there this one thing? And, and I think that's a really good question because it, it, I think that the better way to look at it is, is the number of, of small edges. You know, there may have been a time in any given sport where there was a big aha that, uh, that, you know, was a sea change in, in the way the game is, is thought about and having the right answer to that is a big advantage. I think we're well past that in basketball. I think we were probably past that in basketball well before we got to the point of doing, you know, quote unquote analytics. Um, Three pointer, maybe, but um, um, but I think something was like figured out like pretty early in the in the run of basketball that it's why the play of the game hasn't changed that much in the last I don't know sixty years. Um, but so, but it's about these, these, these small edges, these little places you can be better. 
And that's really much more what the, what looking at basketball through a statistical lens is than one big, I've changed everything and everything, you know, is wrong. And anyone who doesn't see it this way, it can no longer compete. So I, I just, that, 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 that very bottom up mindset of looking at the game, looking for, for little places where you can do things better. And those little things add up. I mean, there's, I think that's uh, almost the beauty of, you know, offensive and defensive rating is per 100 possessions. Like, if you think about that, it's not your, you know, something that improves a team's offensive rating by one point at the NBA level, that's, that's worth two or three wins, but you think about how small an edge that is over the course of a game that this is going to be worth that we do this every time over a hundred possessions, it's going to give us one more point. And that's really what we're going for. Uh, and so I think that's like that ethic is, is, is really one of the things I hope people take away from the book. Well, and I think coaches do appreciate that. And I'm and imagining, like, I'm not saying for sure it was more of a fan based comment, but it's also like, better marketing to have one big idea but the reality is it's not one big idea so i'm glad you didn't have one just big idea uh because as you said it's not that simple um maybe something seth from your perspective uh you wrote the book uh you know you've got feedback you've been thinking deeply you've been doing these interviews is there something that maybe in upon reflection you wish you've added you wish you had added or you added you know maybe discuss deeper or maybe it's a prelude to the next book um, I think I originally, when I was, when I was like, did the original outline of the book, I had the idea to do like a chapter on what you might call people analytics. That's, you know, personality stuff and, and, you know, interpersonal interaction. Uh, I got a really good advice from someone early on to uh, that a great place to start talking about that kind of things would be like people who do data work with the uh, like, you know, dating and matchmaking companies. Uh, cause that's, that's a, uh, you know, similar kind of interpersonal, uh, situation. But I, as I got in and learned, I started learning more about that, um, both from the dating side and then just heard some fascinating stories there, um, as one might imagine. Um, I realized that that's, that's not a chapter. That's a book. Um, and it's a book that I'm, that I would need to like re-educate myself significantly to be able to do justice. So I don't know if it's something I wish I had been able to put in the book, because I don't think I would have been able to, to come close to doing it justice. Um, but that's that's sort of something that I had originally thought about doing more of. And, and I decided to, you know, kind of scale it back and, and, and really just only include it as, hey, this is something people are going to continue learning about in the future, rather than really illustrate how and why it might work such a fascinating thing and uh yeah it's it's all so fun and i'm so grateful for you seth i mean for sharing the game with us and uh for sharing these ideas and i cannot encourage coaches enough to get the mid-range theory it's a great read uh for all levels of basketball and all again stimulate your thinking about what you're doing and how you're doing it and the question is is there a better way and we feel that there's always that 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 type of approach that's going to help us all develop so Thanks for sharing with us. Oh, thank you for having me. This has been a lot of fun. I I, I really enjoy getting getting kind of the the feedback from uh, from sort of the, the the coaching side of the game. I think it's it is it's easy to get sort of lost in your own like bubble, and and it's always important to to have the the broader, more holistic perspective because 
um, you know, it's, it's the, the, the game is, is complicated enough that, that people are coming at it from, you know, a number of different angles and it all matters. And, and to really understand what's going on well, you, you need to, to be able to, to account for all of those perspectives, even if your experience and your expertise is, is primarily in sort of one subgenre of the game. And it's complicated enough, but by and large, we all want the same outcome, which is for our players to get better and for our team to be successful. So it, it just makes sense that more and more people are receptive to any type of thing that will help that happen. Thank you for listening to the Basketball Podcast. Learn more from some of the best coaches in the world at immersionvideos.com. At immersionvideos.com, our unwavering commitment to you is to offer the tools necessary for you to be an outstanding coach who values learning and seeks to evolve. If you're a better coach now than you were yesterday, we've done our job, and so have you. The goal is to focus on authentic sharing of resources you can use to help your players and teams improve. Drills, tactics, techniques, philosophies, practice design, and so much more will be shared from numerous coaches, including Nate Oates, Doug Novak, Aaron Fern, Dave Smart, and so many more to come. Go to ImmersionVideos.com now to check out all the products and follow at ImmersionVideos on Twitter to keep up to date. Thanks for listening. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the show and to give the Basketball Podcast and this week's guest a shout out on social media to show your support for us sharing the game. And to stay up to date on all things Basketball Immersion, subscribe to our newsletter at basketballimmersion.com newsletter.